All right, guys, I hope you're ready. This week, we're watching Hercules. Hey, wait a minute. We already watched that for an earlier episode. Yeah, that's the movie with the bromances and the chads with the lightning whips and the mesh-masked Egyptians. No, no, guys. This one is way less ridiculous than The Legend of Hercules. This is the animated Disney one with all the singing. Oh. Satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokel, here with my heroic co-hosts. I'm Jack Olander, a Greek hero with a secret weak spot. It's secretly my entire body. <laughs> and it's Chelsea Hollowell, a not-so-damsel in not-too-much-distress. Oh, I'm glad that you're not in too much distress. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, this week we watched Disney's Hercules, the 1997 animated classic directed by Ron Clements and John Musker. This movie stars Tate Donovan, Danny DeVito, James Woods, who I won't say anything else about, Susan Egan, Rip Torn, alumni from Beastmaster. You should remember him as my axe. <laughs> And Samantha Egger. And uh, unfortunately, this movie does not star Sean Astin, who I thought played Hercules, but that's just because I only knew this character previously from the Kingdom Hearts games. <laughs> yeah. But before we get too far into the movie, I think Chelsea has a summary ready to go. That's right. Here's your summary for Hercules. <laughs> So our story takes place in Greece in the golden age of gods and heroes. That's my favorite age. <laughs> this is after Zeus has defeated the Titans and they're all sitting up there cushy out on Mount Olympus. On their sweet asses. Not everybody's so happy about this though. You know, Hades, Lord of the Underworld, he's always kind of out of the party. He's down there in the dredges. <laughs> In the underworld, he has to take care of all those lost souls. You know, it's 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 not a it's a thankless job. He's down there in the corpse mines. Yeah, <laughs> and so he hatches a plot to try to take over the throne and overthrow Zeus, but he learns from the three fates that in order to do so, he has to kill the young baby Hercules, who is prophesied to thwart Hades' plans. It's a little bit of an Oedipal story. It's just instead of having to, you know, kill his son, he has to, or instead of being killed by his son, he has to kill his own nephew. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's everything that, that story was about. Yep, that's it. Nothing else. You don't have to read any deeper into that. And um, I thought I had problems. <laughs> so this is a story about family and belonging and heroes and becoming becoming a hero so yeah. why become anything else <laughs> and there's you know 
a whole love subplot in there too, but we can talk about that later. Do we have to? I guess so. Damn. I'm pretty sure it was a super plot in this movie, actually. <laughs> so Hades has his two goblins, Pain and Panic, kidnap baby Hercules and take him down to the human realm to give him a potion to make him mortal. Down in the stinky human place. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the only way Hercu a god can be killed uh, is by becoming mortal first. But... Hercules doesn't drink the last drop of the potion, and so he's still a tiny bit god. And so they are unable to kill him, and he still has super strength. So he grows up with uh, human parents who find him and foster him. And uh, he's kind of a gangly youth, always getting into trouble. He's too strong for his own good. And too clumsy for everyone else's good. But later on, he takes a journey to... Zeus's temple and at the temple he met his father Zeus and realized that was his real father and he got a quest to become a hero on earth so that he can reclaim his godhood and join his family in Olympus Zeus doesn't make the rules he just follows them even though he's the chief king of all gods so I don't know who made the rules before him <laughs> so Hercules finds out about this hero trainer called Philip Tides, and he's got them Tides. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, he does. He's got those Danny DeVito Tides. <laughs> oh God. Uh, he meets up with him, convincing. Philip Tides, who he says should just call him Phil, so we'll do that. We'll do the same. Um, Mercifully, he convinces Phil to let uh, to train him, and so we get um, another montage about Hercules growing up, uh, becoming a man, and being trained to become a hero. And they set off together later after years of training, and he's super swollen now. Zeus, I mean. <laughs> Hercules is super swole now. In your defense, Zeus, also super swole. True. And they go to Thebes, the city that's constantly besieged by natural disasters and curses and the like. The Big Olive, as it's called. <laughs> yeah. Our stand-in for New York City. So, Hercules... Hey, I'm... <laughs> hey, I'm fighting here. <laughs> yeah. So Hercules gets some shade from people when he first shows up in the town. They don't think he's got what it takes to be a real hero. And uh, he's got a chance to prove himself against the... Uh, Hydra. Against the Hydra. Classic way to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a daring fight, but he makes it through. And he's accepted as the local hero. And he defeats, uh, uh, in another montage, all these other monsters and becomes super famous. And they develop a uh, hero industrial complex around him, which we'll get into more later. I know he wasn't <clears throat> the hero that Thebes wanted, but do you think he was the hero that Thebes deserved? No. My <laughs> golden boy, they didn't deserve him. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hercules had met Meg uh, of damsel in distress that he had met on the road or and, was she 
we find out she was working for Hades all along. And Hades finds out that she met Hercules and he convinces her to betray Hercules and find out Hercules' weakness. So in the meantime, they get to know each other more. She ends up falling for him. He falls super hard for her. A pillar falls on her. <laughs> yeah. Um, later it comes out, Hades reveals to Hercules after he has agreed to give his strength to save Meg that she was working for Hades all along. And so he just gave up his strength for nothing. And Hades sets about releasing the Titans and trying to take over Olympus. Release the Titans! This drives a wedge between Hercules and Meg. And uh, in the ensuing fight, she gets mortally wounded. And Hercules uh, takes his pal Pegasus. By the way, Pegasus is in this movie. And uh, they go to the underworld and get Meg back. And it's because... He, uh, Hercules sacrifices himself for love that he gets his god powers back. And um, they make it up to Mount Olympus. But then when Meg turns away all sad because she can't join Hercules up there, he realizes that love is more important than being a god. And so he gives it all up to join, be with Meg on Earth. That's what he claims, at least. But we know that, in reality, he just wanted to be somewhere where he could be better than everyone else. Yeah, he's still going to be super strong down there. And we don't know how long their relationship will last. But, hey, he gave it all his godhood up for it, so... <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I thought this was more just a summer fling type of scenario, makes sense. <laughs> I think I know what it is. The gods and Olympus both glow and Hercules's human eyes were just being seared out of his head well he's a god but he's he's not used to it you know <laughs> and there there you go that's your summary for Hercules all right well with that epic summary out of the way i think it's time to head to the dell Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Disney's Hercules. So guys, we got a lot to talk about this week, but I think one of the uh, things that we probably want to start on is this hero industrial complex that Chelsea mentioned. Yeah. So after Herc gets uh, his first taste of being a hero by uh, stopping the Hydra, he starts to really get a lot of, like, kind of a marketing uh, scheme built up around him. And we see all these different products being um, put out into the market with his face and his logo on them. I mean, he becomes so prolific that even his uh, nemesis henchmen, Pain and Panic, are, like, drinking sodas out of Hercules-themed, uh, like, Greek column glasses and stuff. Yeah. Like, he's such a huge celebrity that he's got this giant palace and everything. I mean, he's he's kind of broken the usual heroic story, um, you know, ar the, broken the usual, like, heroic archetype. He's pushed, like, very quickly into what we might think of as, like, 
what might happen to a character in the aftermath of their story. But this is like the, the kind of the end of the second act where this starts to happen. Part of the whole complex, though, he runs into right when he arrives in Thebes before he becomes famous, we get to see the first glimmer of it because it doesn't just have to do with him becoming famous and then having a bunch of merchandise made in his image. That's part of it. But the other part of it is that there is a whole system in place in this city where people can go and do heroic deeds for money. And that is part of the whole in, um, complex. Yeah, it's a very strange meritocracy we see played out in this film. Yeah. So I guess the local government doesn't have to do anything to help people out. They just rely on heroes coming in to do all of the work. It's a pretty smart scheme if you think about it. Not having to pay any kind of civil servants. Yeah. I mean, horrifying. Probably terrible for the people who seem like they are so... Uh, when. When Hercules arrives in Thebes, the people are so despondent and disillusioned that, like, they see this giant, glistening, almost god, and they're just like, ah, no, like, I, nobody really cares about us people, and, and you're not really going to be able to help us in any way. Like, they're so downtrodden. They're, yeah. They, they want a hero, it seems like, but they're almost at that point where they don't even believe that a hero can exist anymore. They're disillusioned to the point where they're afraid to trust again. Yeah, in ancient Greece, no one cared about the people. Democracy was a lie, and it just wasn't their thing. <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> um, but I thought it was interesting, especially in a Disney movie, to see how the principal protagonist of the film becomes a marketing powerhouse. Yeah, and nobody in the world questions it. Right, of course not. Because Disney can't have you questioning things like Mickey Mouse shoes and Disneyland uh, drink cups and vouchers and stuff. Everybody just accepts that it's part of becoming famous is all the merchandise that comes along with it. And it's so pervasive that even his foster parents have built like a wayside stopping point next to their house, next to this road, where they have like a trink tourist stop uh, and they're selling trinkets with their foster son's face on them right yeah I mean, it's such an it's such a um complicated economic system that's been built up around hercules that we're only getting a glimmer of yeah that you know his own parents have have kind of found a way to make a career for themselves out of having a famous child i mean it's a it's it has uh frightening parallels to reality and kind of like the whole idea of like child stars and kind of celebrity worship uh, but of course again it's very unquestioned in this movie but it did make me wonder I mean who's really seeing the profit from all this is Phil the guy who's kind of like putting out all this merchandise I mean Herc's got a big house but you know whenever somebody becomes a marketing symbol like this there's always somebody else who's profiting the most from it yeah, and it doesn't... I didn't get the impression that it was Phil. He's still his trainer, and he's kind of, like, become his manager, like an agent. But that would usually be one of the people who does end up with the one, one of the bigger shares. Well, he would get, like, commit... Like, if he's, like, an agent in, like, real life, he would get a commission. But the people that would profit the most from it would be the people that are promoting him. 
it's the people who who sign the checks who are really the really rich people. Yeah, like if he were to be working for a studio or something like that. Yeah, I mean this movie took uh, this movie came out long before like the kind of idea about somebody being their own brand and maybe having their own control over this. Not to say that Herc doesn't, but he doesn't necessarily strike us as like the business minded guy, right? He's more of the man of action. Yeah, the classic hero. And we don't even get to see who these shadowy people are who are putting up all the money to um, create all these products. They're they're faceless and nameless, and we just see the results of what they're producing. And we never really get to know who they are. I guess it's Disney. <laughs> oh, that's so meta. Yeah. Well, luckily, I don't think he really needs much of an advertiser, thanks to Hades, right? He's the one who releases the monsters to go after Hercules. He even is seen pushing three monsters at once on his little chessboard model at, at him, and then Herc just, like, gets to kill them in front of everybody, because Hades has all the fights be public affairs. So... When it comes to advertising, it's pretty good when everybody in the city sees you doing it. Yeah. All the time. And, uh, yes, the people who are producing all these novelties for Hercules, we see them in the Zero to Hero music montage, where we see huge rows of people painting his face on urns over and over again. Yeah, well, that's the production line, but I meant the, like, entity, the organization behind all of that. Yeah. Yeah, who's really, who's the real chess master? Exactly. Although, Jack, you bring up a great point about Hades. He's kind of set himself up. He's he's kind of portrayed in this classic kind of businessman sense where he portray, he's portrayed as this character who has found a way to win even when it looks like his side is losing. You know, he, you, we think that when Hercules beats the Hydra, that that thwarts Hades' plan. But the reality is Hades sees opportunity for that to still work out in his favor. He's going to let Herc kind of become this public image. And then he's going to use that as an opportunity to learn more about him and to find his weakness. Because his whole point is he wants to find his weakness. So he's able to send Meg in as kind of his uh, spy, his corporate espionage assistant to find out what makes her tick so that he can find a way to thwart him. Right. Yeah, she is kind of like a corporate espionage spy. Especially at the point that he sends her in, that's after Hercules has gotten really famous. Yeah. I mean, he, he's sent her to... Uh, Hades has sent Meg to Hercules a few times. And every time we kind of see that Meg is becoming a little bit more reticent about doing this. She's a little more hesitant to... To deceive Hercules, she seems to be actually finding out he's a pretty nice guy. He is countering her belief that all people are selfish and greedy and only out to benefit themselves or to exploit other people. She sees Herc as this kind of antithesis of this negative view she has of other humans. That kind of goes into the whole idea of the movie that true love is hard to come by, but... It, you can find it uh, there's like a purity to it and you can find it if your intentions are pure that is actually supported by something that Zeus says because when Hercules is famous 
he actually goes back to a temple of Zeus and is like, okay, like, I'm ready to come up to Olympus now. And Zeus is kind of hemming and hawing and, and dragging his feet. He's like, well, actually, like, being famous isn't really being a true hero. It's kind of the one critical indictment in the film of this hero worship culture that yeah. we see overtly coming through. Like, it's kind of the one line where we see that, you know, character might be more important than action. Right. And Zeus, as you said, was kind of imparting to him that being famous doesn't make a hero. He said it's it's what is within your heart that matters. And we see later in the movie, it's only after he's made a sacrifice for somebody that he loves that he becomes that hero and gets his godhood back. So it's about having strength of heart and kind of sacrificing yourself. I don't think I don't think I necessarily believe that you have to sacrifice yourself to become a hero. Um, but yeah. But that is a common theme, especially in film. Yeah. Or in, in just in fiction in general. And even in our greater, you know, wider culture, the the popular kind of the popular belief system around us. It's used in media like this a lot. But I don't know if people really think about the implications of it before. They just think it sounds really good. But what it's implying is that you need to completely lose yourself over love for it to be pure or true love. And you need to completely just sacrifice everything about yourself for the other person. And that's not what true love is. True love is mutual and it's something that should lift all parties up, you know? Yeah, but it's not just love. It's also for your cause or for your state or your nation. Like this theme is repeated so many times in the popular imagination where the most important thing you can do is to give your life over to something other than yourself to a cause outside of yourself but that you are supposed to be the embodiment of or that is embodied in you in some way yeah and it's just as problematic on that scale too sure uh because people shouldn't this idea that people should sacrifice themselves for a cause i mean working to fight for a cause should be the overall message not sacrificing yourself for it um because first of all you're you're probably not even you're not you wouldn't be able to keep fighting for that cause (laughs) um and you wouldn't see the benefits of it if you were to succeed on any front um and then you wouldn't be there to help support your community anymore (laughs) or your loved ones yeah, the reality is that strong. Um, the reality is that building strong social connections and kind of maintaining a position within a group is a much more valuable way to build coalitions. Yeah, it it's kind of futile to just sacrifice yourself for something, um, unless you don't have a choice. <laughs> right. Sure. This is not to say that there's nothing worth fighting for or or standing for. I mean, quite the opposite, I think. Yeah. My point is that it's much more valuable to fight for something than to just sac- sacrifice yourself for something. Right. Whether that means actual death or just like putting so much of yourself into something like a relationship or a cause 
that you completely lose yourself in it. That that can be a kind of sacrifice too. And I don't think that's good either. <laughs> She's kind of like a fantasy Viking where the idea is you have to fight to win, but you also have to fight to die. <laughs> so he's doing his best to succeed, but at some point, while trying his hardest, he has to fail. It's kind of interesting. Well, I mean, and that does fit with the um, the narrative of a lot of um, ancient Greek literature and stuff. I mean, a lot of the hero stories are about tragic heroes. Yeah. Heroes who are destined to fall while they're trying to accomplish the task at hand. Yeah. Yes, the classic tragedy is one of their own faults is their demise. And for Hercules in this movie, he's just too nice of a guy, you know. <laughs> he loves too deeply. He's too gracious <laughs> for others. You know, he, it's, he, <laughs> it's a folly, you know. He's a stereotypical, like, what is your greatest weakness answer on a uh, job interview, in a job interview. Like, well, I'm just too committed to my job. I care too much. I just care too much, you know. I never miss a day, and sometimes I sacrifice myself <laughs> for the company. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up, Jack, because it, it, I wanted to touch on kind of these two readings that I saw from the f part of the movie where Herc has to give up his strength to Hades. He gives up his, what makes him kind of unique to, he believes, to save Meg, and to some extent that is true. Um, but like it also feeds into Hades' desire to overthrow Olympus. So I think there's two, kind of two readings we can take from Herc giving up his strength. The one is that by giving up raw physical power, Hercules has done something unwise that has put other people in danger, and that the reality is that he should have maintained greater superior physical strength over other people so that he could use that to fight. Okay, that's maybe the more critical reading. I think there's a nicer reading of the movie where you could blow it up into a bigger overarching message where it was what it was giving up what made him kind of special and unique. You know, if one of, if we are to give up what makes any one of us unique, if we're to give up our passion kind of like chelsea is saying about not wanting to like sacrifice everything because that kind of robs you of your ability to contribute to your community right i think there is maybe a different message that we can take away that you shouldn't give up what makes you unique because somebody's telling you that you know you shouldn't have that because that person who's trying to take your individuality from you is actually trying to rob you of some integral part of yourself. Right. And you never know if that part of you is what helps make your community or your cause stronger. It's true. A similar point that follows soon after that was when Phil returns because they were separated after having a fight. And he's basically like, you know, kid, I, I was kind of right, but I was kind of wrong. You do have what it takes because, you know, you're more than just your strength. You can go the distance without it, right? No, you're not just special because of one thing. One supernatural ability wasn't all that it took. He actually managed to save the day 
using like a torch and a bundle of rope that he just found laying around. Right. And so he managed to do all that just by being himself. He didn't need his strength in the end. And I thought that was neat. This is because of all the years of training that he underwent with Phil. He, this is all the stuff he, all the skills he learned and all that hard work. So I think that what Jack, uh, what goes into Jack's point is that the message in the movie could be that, you know, training is kind of more important than talent in a way. I mean, you need both to do really great things like we see him do later, but they're kind of making the point that training is going to take you a lot farther. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point because we actually see early on that Herc's strength with no finesse is a huge detriment to everyone around him, and it makes him a pariah in his community. That's true. Because he's constantly destroying everything around him through his clumsiness, and the combined with his just insane strength, he's able to, like, tear down entire communities on accident. Right. Thousands of years of civilization gone from a single frisbee toss. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now... I, I will make a counterpoint to this more positive message, though, because the film does seem to have a seething disdain for quote-unquote normal people. Yeah. There's a, there's a line that Hades says where when he takes Herc's strength away from him, he says, now you're going to know what it's like to be like everybody else. There is just dripping sarcasm and, and loathing directed at quote-unquote common people. Right. And I think that that can't really be uncoupled completely from the message of the film because we see, again, like these common people in Thebes who are completely downtrodden and have no concept of doing anything for themselves. Right. They are passively waiting for a quote-unquote hero. And I'm sorry if I'm overusing quote-unquote. I hate myself for it too, so don't worry. <laughs> if you if you thought you hated me for it, I hate myself more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, but, I mean, this this message of this movie is a lot about passivity and waiting for the uberman to do something for you. And that's not questioned at all. Right. Either, as, along with the other uh, themes, you know. Um, Herc feels entitled to being elevated above everyone else, and the movie enforces that in the end. Yeah, and everybody else accepts it, like you're saying. He's the true golden child he's literally glowing gold and um i also don't like how uh part of him losing his strength involved him losing his blonde hair i found that questionable i know that blonde hair was the last remnant of his godhood I, he didn't <laughs> drink the last drop and his blue eyes and blonde hair survived <laughs> well he lost the blonde hair it his, just became like a dirty blonde it became like auburn yeah, kind of orange. Kind of uh, orangey, yellow, grayish, brownish, blackish. Just all those colors. But yeah. yeah, it struck me as odd while we were watching the movie. Like, I didn't understand why other. I didn't like the idea that they were trying to present that other people couldn't be heroes without this supernatural ability and that you have to have something like that to be a hero. I mean, they do try to kind of go back on it later in the movie, but most of the movie is centered around what Jamie was talking about, where everybody's just passively waiting to for a hero to save them. And um, I think that I disagree with that. I think that any one person can be a hero if they decide to be. It's a kind of a personal decision 
to be a hero for other people. And there are so many different ways that anybody could realize that. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And if we're going to talk about the idea of being a true hero in this movie, you know, sacrificing yourself for something bigger than yourself, uh, I think someone who does that before Hercules is Meg. Yeah. You know, because she actually kind of gets somewhat of a redemption arc in this film. You know, she works for Hades. She has a bad view of humanity. Against her will, it seems like. Against her will. Well, she signed up for it, but she's not into it. And she actually sacrifices herself to save Hercules when he's powerless before Herc, you know, sacrifices himself for her. That's a good point. Yeah, her entire job, like literal indentured servitude, was to, you know, thwart Hercules and to stop him. But in the end, she gives up her life to save him, you know, for love, for friendship. Just because, you know, she cares about him and he, like, you know, they have a bond and it's a good thing. And so I think she actually made the noble sacrifice first. That's fair. Funny enough. Because that act is what gave Herc his powers back because Hades, it was one of those uh, kind of, like, deals with the devil where the devil doesn't consider all the ramifications of the contract where uh, he says that Meg won't get hurt. Right. And then when she pushes Herc out of the way because of the destruction that Hades' titans are causing, I guess the uh, moral authority that is maintaining contracts in the universe decides, oh, no, wait, but, you know, Hades quite freak, uh, quite clearly said on line 47 that Meg would not be hurt. So, you know, I think that that's a great point, Jack, that Meg is the first one to kind of make this big sacrifice of herself for something other than herself, which goes against, or, or which shows her character growth from earlier in the movie, where she doesn't believe that anybody could be selfless. She doesn't believe that anybody is anything other than petty and self-serving. So Hercules being a hero helps people believe in people again and begin to trust others. In Phil's musical montage, he says that being a hero is a dying art. It's like painting a masterpiece. It's a work of heart. And like you said with the Zeus line, where you have to look in your heart for it, she's made two sacrifices from the heart, and Herc has, I think, made one. But, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah. She's pretty outstanding. If she didn't drink the last drop, maybe she'd be a god, too. (laughs) hmm interesting (laughs) yeah Yeah, like why did she have to get turned away at the gates they're all those gods are all powerful can't they just write her into the will and make her a goddess (laughs) hey listen there's rules and and zeus doesn't make them he just has to follow them but isn't he like the all father or something (laughs) i do want to quickly touch on the way zeus is shown in this movie oh yes i'm so glad you're bringing this up what yeah i was shook let's take a look so hades right he wants to take over olympus because it'll allow him to rewrite the cosmos which means whoever is in charge of olympus gets to be in charge of it all right right which means zeus did make the rule that only gods can live in olympus right and he's like no megara cannot be 
Meg cannot be a god, right? And Herc can't come in unless he's full god and, and like, redeems himself. It's true, which means this kind of goofy Zeus, this kind of, you know, fun-loving party Zeus, right? Maybe not super party, but he's nice. He lives very strictly by his own laws. He doesn't see his own kids as, like, as exempt from it, you know? Or himself, even. So he's like, look, you can't live up here if you're not a god. You just can't. I, I made it so. But I have a loophole. You can do this and then hope for the best. <laughs> I thought that was neat because Zeus in mythology is pretty flip-floppy, I think, because he'll just like have an impulse and do something which has catastrophic effects or he'll give his word like in the iliad where he's like yes uh we we can stay out of this the gods we're all gonna stay out of it and then his wife is like hey big boy let's get in that war am i right and then he's like you know what you're fucking right. right? <laughs> so he's pretty flip floppy. In this, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah, it was he also a lot more like a cool headed leader. It was also kind of shocking to see Zeus portrayed as a loving and doting husband and father. I know. <laughs> I mean, early on at least. I mean, seeing he and Hera getting along so well was, um, let's just say, not necessarily mythologically accurate. Yeah. I mean, in the mythology, it seems, at least from my perception of it, that they have a very toxic relationship, but the, but she's great. They're both great in the sack. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, they are gods. <laughs> yes, that's what keeps them together. But uh, in this one, they appear to be very much in love, which is... That's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the sanitized Disney version of relationships. Yeah. There weren't any golden showers in this film. Oh, if only. <laughs> or any divine cows. Ooh. And before we move on real quick, I know you mentioned that you wanted to bring up how he has like semi-infinite number of father figures. But we can skip that if you'd like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the movie is definitely, like, about um, Herc, Herc finding his various dads in life. I mean, Zeus is his initial dad, and then he looks up to Zeus, and when he finds out that he's Zeus's son, he's, like, over the moon. But then he also has this father who is the dad who found him early on when he was brought down from Olympus by the two demons, and... Then Phil becomes a father figure to him. And, like, it seems like, I mean, this is, like, kind of, um, while Disney movies tend to be absent mothers, there is always an abundance of father figures who are uh, the overarching authority of all creation. And, I mean, that's just a theme that gets repeated pretty heavily in this movie. Yeah, the mothers get short shrift. Like, uh, Hera is just kind of in the background and... Herc doesn't really develop much of a relationship with her. The fact that she's present at all is impressive for a Disney movie of this era. True, and she's not really his mother in mythology anyway, but in this movie she was supposed to be. But also, right. also Hercules' uh, foster mother 
draws the short straw or whatever because um she's the one who actually found him she saw him and she was in going she heard him first and was going to investigate and then found him and went to pick him up immediately and was trying to console him because he was an infant at this point and um her husband said to leave him there because he was probably cursed <laughs> and then Damn. she she's the one who was saying that they should bring him in and that he was a blessing and that they had been trying to have children for years and couldn't and they that she said it's probably a gift from the gods she was doing the emotional labor of course yeah and but uh throughout the rest of the movie it really only highlights hercules's uh relationship with his foster father it doesn't really show his mother very much at all and she's the one who went to bat for him and wanted to raise him and yeah. she she's the one who convinced her husband to take him in great point it's true and through all this i just keep having flashbacks to the legend of hercules oh god hercules is fighting his adopted dad Amphetrion, and with the lightning whips wiggling <laughs> them around and Amphetrion doing like flips with these two-handed battle axes I'm <laughs> like Maybe it's better that Ampetrion wasn't a bigger character in this film. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, just the lightning whips. The <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this movie was really lacking some lightning whips. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Some, some pillar clubs. Yes, that yeah. is true. A little God of War influence, although this movie came out before God of War. so There was yeah. no God of War to influence Disney's Hercules. Right. It's true. Except for Hephaestus. That thing also about Disney focusing a lot on the father figures, that I think was definitely more of a theme in the 90s and maybe early 2000s. It's still pretty freaking strong today, but I think they're splitting it up a lot more evenly with the moms. Okay. Well, Walt's uh, fatherly uh, tyrannical influence is waning, I guess. <laughs> Well, he's yeah. dead. Exa he's he's dead. Or is he? <laughs> yeah. Well, now that we're talking about Walt Disney, it seems like the perfect time <laughs> to move on to evil, stupid, or misunderstood. This is Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the podcast where we take a look at the primary antagonist of the film and determine if they were just misunderstood, or maybe they're evil, or maybe just really stupid. So guys, let's talk about Hades. I think it's nice, after a few movies, where the antagonist isn't super clear to have a movie where it's just like, oh, he's the bad guy. No, oh, that's him. The guy with the flames on his head. He's evil. Yeah, yeah. The guy who uh, they say has an evil plot from the very beginning song. Yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. Now I knew. Now I know who to root for. I root for Hercules. But I have a fine appreciation for Hades. <laughs> I want him to be misunderstood because mythologically he's such an interesting complex character. Yes. And in this movie 
He's not, but he's still pretty charming, despite him being a scumbag. He is like the uncle, like the sleazy uncle that everybody has. So in a way, it's kind of like you know him. Yeah. I can see that. I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I agree. I mean, I just really was jonesing for a Hades that was uh, relatable as well. <laughs> I mean, he's got the charisma. Like, it's undeniable. Yeah, he does. I agree with Jack 100% that mythologically speaking, I think he's misunderstood. Yeah, absolutely. And that he serves a real purpose and that people often erroneously equate him with the Christian devil and he's got completely different characteristics. Oh, yeah. I mean, not even, almost no overlap other than the whole, like, Lord of the Underworld thing. Right. And there's the whole abduction of Persephone angle that kind of clouds people's judgment around Hades in terms of the mythological figure. Um, but they actually had a, um, a union that was uh, mutual, a, a, a mutual attraction to one another in the myths. Hmm. And, um, you know, she actually comes into her own power, Persephone as the goddess of the underworld and she makes a choice yeah i mean yeah they, they clearly with this movie they changed the myths around quite a bit as we've talked about up to this point i did feel like they were kind of trying to go with a persephone angle with megara but it still diverges pretty heavily yeah persephone she might have been a stand-in for persephone but it was pretty far off from the myth in terms of anything like that, and Persephone herself was completely absent. Right. Yeah. So, in myth, Hades was kind of like the guy who takes the night shift all the time, takes his job really seriously, does it well. It's kind of his life until he gets a girlfriend, and then he learns to cut loose a little bit. <laughs> yes, right? good, good description. Yes, but in this one, I'm going to have to go ahead and say he's evil. Okay, what, let's hear your case. Because I don't think he's misunderstood. He was given the job of the underworld, and it seems like he never took the option or thought it was an option to be like, hey, mind if we switch it up a little bit and maybe you take over? Because early on in the film... Zeus invites him to come and hang out in Olympus more often. And Hades is like, thanks, but I got a full-time gig that you so generously gave to me, right? And he says it really spitefully, clearly. And so it's not that he couldn't cut loose more often in this one. It's that he's resentful of it from the get-go. So I, you know... When you have an out and you ignore it and you're just a jerk about it anyway, I think that might put you more towards stupid than a misunderstood. <laughs> Plus, he, for the evil angle, he wanted, he enslaved all of the gods and goddesses and entombed Zeus and then took over and was going to be, was setting himself up to be a tyrant. Yeah, definitely. That's all pretty evil stuff. I mean, I don't want to play Hades' advocate here. It does <laughs> seem it does seem like they were trying to maybe create a little bit of a misunderstood angle with Hades' resentment towards Zeus, 
But yeah, I mean, he leans pretty heavy into the strictly evil direction. I mean, he's conniving. His plots are actually not so bad, so I don't think he's stupid necessarily. Like, he comes kind of close to getting what he wants, and what he wants is a lot of power and autonomy. He just wants it at the expense of everybody else, which sounds pretty evil to me, so I don't think you'll get much argument. Yeah. It's true. I don't think he's very stupid. He consoled the women who could see the future to make sure that his plan was possible. When he found out it was, he had an item, a weapon, which would be able to stop the one thing that could get in his way. Yeah, of course, he didn't know that a theme of Greek myths is that knowing the future, you're going to do it anyway. Yeah, if only he'd read them ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. of course, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he set long-term goals and he had allies that he was trying to get on his side over time yeah he basically was like i have 18 years to do this so i'll plan it out those aren't normally things that stupid villains say you know you, you know what his one stupid act was having stupid minions i was gonna say sending demons to do a god's work <laughs> yeah. yeah you know it yeah I agree. All right. Well, I think that that pretty much centered it. He was mostly evil and maybe just stupid at one point and, and trusting the wrong people. Then I guess it's time to head to the smithy. Welcome to the smithy where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, would you like to go first and tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 lightning bolts? Sure. I'm going to call this an epic feature. I really loved the relationship between Hercules and Pegasus. Aww. It was kind of like a boy and his dog, and they were like best friends. And I really loved their camaraderie and uh, how much they loved just joshing around together and roughhousing together. And uh, Pegasus could withstand a lot of uh, horsing around with Hercules, so he must have been pretty strong. But uh, I, I Horsing thought... <laughs> around, I get it. <laughs> But, uh, he had some real horsepower. Don't hate me. Um, I thought it was pretty cute, and I just really enjoyed that part of the movie. Um, despite myself, I was like trying to be not. <laughs> I was trying to not just melt about it, but I couldn't help it. Our cat Loki was just grumbling at our puns. <laughs> yeah. So that's my epic feature. You know, I gotta think about this movie in context because it is from 23 years ago. So I think with keeping that in mind, I'm gonna give it a 7 out of 10 lightning bolts because it's very cartoony. Because um, it's a cartoon. But in comparison with other Disney films, beyond the animated part, it feels very much like a Looney Tunes animation. It really does. And it's, it's a very silly thing that doesn't really fit with the subject matter of the movie, so that lost it some points. 
but I remember when I was younger and I watched it, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, so I think for the time period that it came out in, it kind of fit that context a little bit better. So that's why I didn't lose it so many points for that. Um, but I think, I mean, there, there is a lot of mis mixed messaging in the film, but I think the positive messages kind of stand out. And I do like the idea that, you know, you can train to gain skills and that you don't just fall back on your natural talents to succeed in life and that you can't just rely on your family to give you your opportunities, you know. So, um, yeah, there, there are some good messages in the movie. So, yeah, I get it. Seven out of ten lightning bolts. A solid score. Jack, your epic moment or feature and a rating? I suppose my epic feature is going to be Hercules' sensitivity Okay. in the movie. It's something that a lot of people around my age and my generation, a lot of people who grew up with this film could really relate to. A lot of other lot of, uh, baby boomers? Yes, of course. <laughs> a lot of the things he deals with are finding himself... As a person, uh, he's not sure where he fits in, where he belongs. There's a whole song about it called Go the Distance. And this song was really impactful. Uh, like Chelsea and Jamie know, I've met three people who have tattoos, which are lyrics from the song, <laughs> because people really related to it. And a lot of the ways that Hercules holds himself in the film are really like kind and sensitive and that's a big part of his character when meg is kind of like confiding in him in one of the few moments that she's deceiving him where she's kind of opening up in a genuine way and she's saying that like people are petty and dishonest there's a, a scene i really like where it's just like his face changing to like fit the situation where he's like about to be nice to her and it's like what she said just spoke to his heart and i was like oh that was actually really nice because now i believe he's a nice guy <laughs> when he makes a face like that and a lot of the things he says it's like i i you know what this guy is kind of a hero i can buy it because like hercules the legend of hercules is just like i'm gonna get my girlfriend back <sighs> you know flexing and drinking protein shakes i don't right. know Hercules in this movie felt a lot more like someone who's trying to do good for good's sake. He's a Hercules you could see yourself having a beer with? Yeah, exactly. Altruism. Yeah, exactly. I like that. I like a hero that's a good guy sometimes, you know? All right. The edgy hero's cool, but, you know, he's nice. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard for me to rate this movie. That's okay. You've got so, to do it anyways, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know... I grew up with it as well, and it's so fun. Soundtrack is a banger. Uh, I'll give it 8 out of 10 stars, because I think it is very enjoyable. It makes me feel good to watch it. Some of the themes, like women being used as tools, are meant to be negative in the film, but it could have conveyed it a lot more, I think. I think that's a women, fair point. Yeah, women could be portrayed 
a little more strongly, like the mom went through a lot. So, yeah, I think this is a very positive movie, but I think women could have a bit of a better role. Fair. What about you, Jamie? What was your epic moment in rating? Oh, I'm glad you asked. My epic moment was a little something that we spotted while watching the movie. After Hercules has become the iconic hero of Thebes and has become a celebrated hero, there's a scene where he's having his portrait painted on a vase, and he is wearing what I assume to be the Nemean lion's helmet, or the Nemean lion's head, but this is fucking Scar from the Lion King's head, which means that Scar survived falling into the, uh, or, uh, the Scar survived the hyenas, fought his way out, survived until he could make his way to ancient Greece, and then got murdered by this meathead Hercules just to be worn as a fucking headdress. It opened up so many questions. Made me wonder why Disney didn't start leaning into crossovers more before the whole Kingdom Hearts thing got off the ground. But, I mean, I, I did think it was very cool that he was wearing Scar's head as a headdress. Just, you know, it also raised, again, a lot of questions. Um, so, I, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. I think this is the first time I've seen it. If it wasn't, I, I had forgotten everything. Like I said, most of what I knew about it, about the character, was from Kingdom Hearts. Um, and the TV show that I think changes quite a bit. Um I'm going to give this movie six lightning bolts. I, like I said, I had fun watching it. It's very rushed. Um, the pace is very off. There's a lot of montages. It's trying to tell a lot of story very quickly. A lot of Disney movies, I think, benefit from telling their stories in a few days or weeks. This tells it over many years. I don't know if we necessarily needed a hero's origin story. Um... There's some weird things going on with the animation that seems a little like like it doesn't fit from one scene to the next. And I, I'm not here to be like an animation critic, but just it kind of took me out of the moment a few times. So yeah, I think six lightning bolts is what this one's getting. You Fair. can't talk me out of it, <laughs> even if you try. <laughs> All right, well with that out of the way, let's head to the bounty board. Awaken with the cold feeling of stone pressed against your face, your head throbbing, your body aching as if it had just suffered a high fall. As you peel yourself off the ground and look around, you see yourself in a labyrinthine chamber surrounded by many openings through the halls. You wander for hours trying to find your way out of this dungeon. You finally see a glimmer of light. You walk out. You look up into the blue sky that you had craved so dearly. And written in the sky, in the clouds, is bounties? So we have a more personalized bounty for all of you this week. Uh, as the shelter-in-place orders continue for some states and are lifted in others, 
it's a good time to check in with your loved ones. This movie was about family, belonging, and love. I think it's important to give somebody you haven't talked to in a while a friend or a family member and just talk to them, see how they're doing, see how they're holding up with the shelter in place order, talk to them about what's going on in their lives and just carve out some time so that you can talk to them for as long as they want to talk. And that, that'll go a long way to helping people cope, helping you cope and helping to maintain those bonds that are so important to all of us. That's a very nice bounty, Chelsea. Thank you. On that note, let's rewrite some history. Welcome to Rewriting History, the part of the show where we take the movie we just watched and discuss ideas for a sequel, a reboot, or a spin-off, or a crossover. So guys, since we know that this Disney cinematic universe does actually exist, and that all of these movies do take place in a shared world because of Scar's head, this wasn't just like something in the background. This was a foreground shot of the main character wearing the skull of another major Disney character. The pelt. <laughs> so let's build on that. What does this universe look like? What does the Hercules center of this Disney cinematic universe look like? I see what's happening here. All right. <laughs> You're face to face with greatness and it's strange. No, wait, not Ma no, not not Moana. But Simba from The Lion King, he's a king, right? Right. Yes. It's like a and god, but for mortals. Exactly. <laughs> Some would say. I don't agree with that statement. but Yes, it's true. And they, to develop better relations with Greece, <laughs> inform, inform Greece that they have a dangerous usurping war criminal <laughs> out on the loose and that agent hyenas could not kill him right so this is a crossover <laughs> spin-off yes okay i love it hercules hears that scar is hiding out in the greek cave landscape hoping not to be caught by simba right now is hercules surprised that lions can talk since pegasus doesn't speak the same line, like Pegasus doesn't speak in the way that like the the lions and the animals and the Lion Kings do. Do so. Do we have to have a moment where Hercules is grappling with this, or does he just accept it from the beginning? I kind of want everyone else to freak out that it's talking lions, and for Hercules to just be like, "Give me the details, Simba." <laughs> All right. But in the Hercules cinematic universe that we got to see, there are satyrs and nymphs. And centaurs and all of these creatures that are part animal that can speak or right. part nature being. Like you would expect. So I think that he wouldn't be too caught off guard by animals that could speak. Okay, so that works. Maybe Pegasus is just lazy and never... Because he can fully understand what everything that they say to him. Oh yeah, he has the emotional range of any human yeah i mean and and the and the ability to express his feelings just herc doesn't know how to read them maybe it's just that um 
Pegasi are unable to verbalize in a way that uh, other animals can in this cinematic universe. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a real Goofy and Pluto scenario, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what else? What What else were you going to talk say about it, Jack? So you were talking, starting to say that Scar was hiding out in the caves in Greece. Oh yeah. Well, Nemea. I think you can assume, yes, in Nemea, right? Although, I think you can see how it ends yes. for Scar. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of like the Rogue One of Hercules. Yes. Right. I'm kind of imagining a creepypasta-style film where someone is like, Guys, I found a cursed version of Hercules where Scar is hiding in a cave and Hercules finds him and skins him brutally. <laughs> <laughs> wears him like a hat and talks to an artist and a, and a satyr that aren't actually there in the room with him. <laughs> no, it would be so bad, but no, not like that. Hercules kills Scar, of course, because he's one of the monsters. Although we don't ever see him kill the monsters. They always end up dead. Yeah. Yeah, huh, funny that. So, maybe he helps to <laughs> Hercules helps to kill this war criminal from Simba and Nala's lands and this sets up positive relations between their kingdoms and um, by this point Hercules is, has his own city-state in Greece after he's returned with Meg and uh, they're ruling over it together so now we're jumping into the future of them. Like we're, we're going to be yeah, jumping yeah. around, much like the movie we just watched jumps around a lot. We're kind of filling in those blanks. We can just have a montage with a, a song, and and we'll get there. So then, <laughs> Simba and Nala send emissaries. Uh, I guess the toucan. <laughs> I was going to say, what if uh, they've? What if we bring in another crossover here, and they've made uh if simba and nala have made contact with mowgli and uh baloo from the jungle book oh nice well hold on let me let me finish getting my idea out there so they send um their advisor their vizier the toucan guy or whatever the bird um zazu the hornbill oh thank you zazu the hornbill and they send him as an emissary on a diplomatic mission to go see Hercules and Meg. And um, he tells them of a hyena uprising in the lands of the lions. Oh, so now that the now that the hyenas were not able to kill Scar for Simba and Nala, they've determined that they need to be eliminated. I see how this goes. And this, this is where we can pull in some class struggle because the hyenas are uprising because they feel like they aren't getting enough food and they're like second class citizens. Yeah, they, justifiably so. They're angry. And they're tired of taking all the scraps that are left over from the lions and guarding their borders without any real benefits. And so they're basically going on strike. And so Hercules is going to be in a difficult position because he wants to help out his new friends, the king and queen of the Savannah. I hate to say it, but I don't think Herc would have any... Uh, <laughs> I don't think Herc would have any problem crushing the hyena uprising. Yeah. Given his disdain for common people. And so this is where Mowgli and Baloo can come in. They'll be on the side of the hyenas. 
Oh, interesting. Helping the common okay. man I rise thought, up. <laughs> I thought they'd be the emissaries, but that's good. I like that. Yeah. Yes. And Mowgli and Blue, right? They were told that, you know, these hyenas are an oppressed group. So they're like, oh, we got to help. So they start making their way over there. But really, Yeah, they seem like they'd be freedom fighters to me. Yes. But really, it's all the machinations of King Louis, the orangutan, right? And <laughs> he's a wily dude who likes to stir things up. You know, he likes being on top. That's his whole thing. And so he's hoping to overthrow Simba by start by coaxing a rebellion from this oppressed group and by sending heroes over to deal with it. Nice. Right? Yeah. Yes. And so there are secretly monkeys in the background puppeting the hyena uprising. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Mowgli and Baloo are mobilizing uh, allies from the jungle to fight for the hyena resistance. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. And in I'm, order to... I'm cheering on the hyena resistance. <laughs> yeah. And on their way to help out the hyenas, where, what land do they have to pass through? From India to get to Africa, but Agrabah, the most yes. powerful Middle Eastern nation that's ever existed. Um, star of my favorite movie, Aladdin. So that's how they get there so quickly, because as we know from the Aladdin cinematic universe, Genie comes back and is friends with them and just fucking uses his magic whenever they fucking need it because they're just pals now. Who's more powerful, Genie or the gods? Oh, come on. I don't know. This question will have to be answered in Hercules Crossover Part 3. <laughs> but we'll save that for another time. That's uh, that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and other than that, we'd like to thank you all for joining us today and spending your time talking about Hercules with us. I assume that you were talking to us while we were talking to you. If you don't mind, why don't you go on to Apple Podcast and give us a review, hopefully a five-star rating if you really had a good time. Tell other listeners what you think. It would really go a long way to helping us get the word out there about our show. And um, you can also follow us on Instagram and check out the sweet memes that we make every week for each movie. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Swords and Satire, to know what we're up to, and maybe I'll even start letting people know ahead of time what the movies are going to be. You can send us messages via email to swordsandsatire at gmail.com. Ask us questions about the movies or about ourselves and what fantasy genres we like the most. Yeah, and we'll answer them on the air. I mean, not on the air, but on the podcast. You can whisper sweet nothings into a red piece of construction paper you've cut into the shape of a heart. Put it into a glass bottle with a biodegradable cork and then toss it out into the ocean and hope it arrives at our doorstep somehow. Yeah, I get Maybe a bird will carry it to us. I get more random glass bottles on my front doorstep that randomly got delivered by birds with messages from listeners than I can even count. Yeah. And don't forget to check us out on Patreon and give us a little monetary support if you're able. If you're able. 
Don't feel bad if you can't. We still love you. That's right. But hey, until next time, Hail Crom! Hail him.